Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. We are during this season in a series called East of Eden, in which we're listening to several of the stories that begin the first book of the Bible from Genesis chapters 3 through 11, because these are some of the signature portrayals that we have in the Bible of the human predicament and also of how God intervenes to rescue us in Jesus. And so today we're going to be listening to the story of the flood. It really encompasses about four chapters of the Bible from Genesis 6 through 9. We're going to be just listening to a selection from Genesis 6 for the sake of time. So I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to listen to the scriptures and then we'll turn to the text. So pray with me if you would. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amidst all the changing words of our generation, Speak to us your word that does not change. And give us grace to respond with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Friends, listen, if you would now, to the word of God from Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I created. People together with animals and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, excuse me, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. God saw that the earth was corrupt For all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Here's how you are to make it. The length of the ark... 300 cubits, its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven everything in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark with you to keep them alive. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, of the animals, according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the earth, according to its kind. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark with you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2014, the film director, Darren Aronofsky, released a, a big-budget movie that was an interpretation of the story of Noah. Some of you likely saw it when it came out. It was imaginative, epic, provocative. It was a blockbuster hit of sorts. And I remember when the movie came out, reading the review of the film in The New Yorker and being struck by how perceptive the review was of this strange old story itself. This is, this is what the reviewer said about, the, about both the film and the biblical story behind it. So the few verses devoted to God's wrath in this story before he unleashes the flood are clear about the design of the ark. God assembles a contractor's list detailing cubits, lumber, decks, and windows. But they are notoriously mysterious about everything else. God sees that, quote, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The wickedness of everyone? This remains baffling. The blunt oddity and remoteness of this text are a challenge the reviewer says, even to the most fearless artist. I think that that gets this story, actually. This is a story, first of all, that is remote from us. This is an ancient, ancient story. This text, in particular, is completely uninterested in answering many of the kinds of questions that that somebody in the 21st century and the global West would likely first have come to mind. Like, when did this happen? Or, where is the ark? Or, was this flood a flood that covered the whole world? Or was it the, the whole known world of the, of the Mesopotamian storyteller? We don't, we don't have answers to those questions, and I would say to you that those actually, those really aren't the deepest questions. And beyond that, this is a story that's, that's baffling to us, and, and dark even. If you're somebody who's been around the church for some time, you likely, if you're somebody who's had children or you currently have younger children, you read cartoonish versions of this story to your little ones or you, or you give other people little, you know, little, little gifts or clothing with renditions of this story on it. You teach your kids songs about Noah building an arky arky. But in reality, this is a sober story. On the other hand, the book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 3, it tells us that this is a story that, in the words of 1 Peter 3, prefigures Christ. In other words, it is an ancient picture or a window for us to look through 
that shows us ultimately what God is doing in the world and in our lives through Jesus. And so for a few moments together, I want to invite you to simply reflect on this story with me, to look at this ancient picture and to see here both the ruin that we experience and know and also the rescue that God provides us in Jesus. First, this is a story of ruin. What do we see when we look through God's eyes, as it were, on the world? We have summary statements here in the very first line of the text, and then again in verses 11 and 12, if you have the Bible in front of you. It says, it says in verses 11 and 12 that the earth had become corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. That word that word corruption in the language this part of the Bible was originally written in, it carries the sense of something having spoiled or something having gone bad or having, having been ruined evenly. Or we might say if we were translating this into the idiom of, of the rural South, we'd say that it was ruined. The biblical writer tells us that the earth had become filled with violence. Now, there are all sorts of connections, if you, if you read carefully, between this story and the creation story that opens the book of Genesis in chapters 1 and 2. And this is one of those places in the poetry of Genesis 1, when God shapes the human community, God gives them the vocation to fill the earth. They're to, they're to make other people, to make human communities, to steward the world this beautiful place that God had made. Here, five chapters later and generations on down the line, people have indeed filled the earth. But what we filled it with is bloodshed and violence and injustice. The flood story, in a way, is a story of uncreation, of creation in reverse. If you remember the creation story, it pictures God separating waters to let life emerge. Here, God allows water to collapse back in on creation. This story is a picture for us of what a life apart from God is like. Life and a world apart from God, this story tells us in no uncertain terms, is ruined. This story tells us soberly that life without God is not life at all. In one way, the flood is simply an accelerated version of the trajectory that creation is on and our lives are on within that when we shut our creator out of our lives. There's a Christian thinker, reformer named John Calvin from the 16th century who in one comment on this passage makes this point. He says, the world was not overwhelmed with a flood of waters until it had first been immersed in the pollution of wickedness. In other words, that the chaos and, and death of the flood is essentially what we already inflict on each other, just wetter. Now that's Sometimes a hard pill to swallow, it feels like, when you live in a relatively, a relatively comfortable and affluent 
place in the world like we do, and yet in a moment in time in which we are constantly assaulted day by day by images, video footage of the horrors that we inflict on each other elsewhere in the world, we realize that this is maybe a more realistic description of the state of our world than maybe we would have at first thought. And so we're told that God is, is pained or grieved over this. The root of, of that word is actually the same as the one that is used to describe Eve's pain in childbirth as a result of the, of the fall. <clears throat> the point is that God experiences infinite sorrow over the world that we choose without him. So the flood's no cranky explosion. It's about God, the creator, refusing to be indifferent or calloused about the, the violence and injustice that infests the creation that he loves. It's about God acting to stop corruption in its tracks. Now, I'm aware that for, especially for those of us for whom you're, you're not super connected to Christian faith or church and, and are visiting or, or you've been, been here with friends for some time and you're exploring the claims of Christian faith. The, the idea of God judging human sinfulness or wrong is, is one that we don't instinctively love in the moment and time that we live in. We, don't, we find that idea, some of us, quite offensive. So if that's you, I want to pause and help you notice this. Even if you're somebody for whom you find that idea re regressive, repressive, offensive, you, you actually live like it's true. And I would say li life is unlivable without that assumption. You see, even, even if you're somebody for whom you find the idea of a God who, who acts against or is a judge over, over human wrong, if you find that, if you find that you know, offensive in, in some way or another, at the same time, I'll bet that you, you probably think that it is, better to be, it is better to be kind rather than cruel to the people around you. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you think that, that everybody should, should live like that. And it's not just what you happen to think because you've been socially conditioned to think that. You really think everybody should live like that. I'll bet that you probably really think that it's better to, it's better to be compassionate towards, towards those who are disadvantaged or in an unfortunate place in life than it is to be callous towards them, that it's better, it's better to, to be kind to the poor than to crush the poor. I bet you think that that's true. And I'll bet you think that probably everybody should live like that. Now, we, we carry that assumption in life because we, we have in our bones the assumption that we live before a judge of some kind. Even if you would say you live inside of a story of the world that would say that life is meaningless. You know, this came home to me when I was listening to an interview a little while ago with Vince Gilligan, who's a TV producer and writer. He was the creator of the, the hit TV series Breaking Bad. 
If you've never seen that, that television series, it tells the story of a, a man who was a high school chemistry teacher who turned meth salesman and merciless killer. And it explores the moral contradictions that live inside of all of us in really fascinating ways. And the interviewer on NPR who was having a conversation with Gilligan was asking about him about his own beliefs. And he describes himself as somebody who's agnostic. He, he doesn't He's not a Christian, and he doesn't believe in God, but in his words, he, he hopes that there is something or someone more than us out there. And as the interviewer was asking him about why it is that he, that he thinks this, I was fascinated by what he said. He said in response to that question, he says, listen, if there is no cosmic justice in the universe, then how can we say that there is any meaning at all in life? If there's no cosmic justice, what's the meaning of it all? Now, what we have a hard time dealing with is that this description of a life ruined isn't just true of the world in some other place, but it's also true of me within the world. If you're like me, <clears throat> when you hear the opening line of this text, it's easy, to, it's easy to argue with it, if we're being honest. When I read the line, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. If you're like me, I say like, me, really? You know, are the thoughts of my heart only evil continually? Like, I'm not that bad, really? You know, I'm not bombing hospitals. I recycle, you know? Well, the point, of, the point of that statement is, is what many of our older ancestors in faith meant when they talked about the total depravity of humanity. That human darkness and violence and wrong infests all of the institutions and systems and communities that we're a part of, and it also infests every recess of the human heart. It's not that at every moment of every day, you and I are as bad as we possibly could be, is that there's no dimension of our lives that, that's left untainted by sin. I have, an older, I have an older friend and mentor who's a pastor who always says this this way. He says, you know, we're not all Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for lack of talent. I was struck by this several years ago when I attended a concert by the indie folk artist Sufjan Stevens. He is a, he's a folk artist who is also, also has a number of other genres he works in. And as I attended this concert on this particular evening, much of the evening was pretty lighthearted and, and playful and psychedelic even. And after he finished the main portion of his concert, people cheered him to an encore. And so though he had performed much of the evening with a full band and then a string section and brass players and, and more, he came out for the encore with just himself and an acoustic guitar. And he closed his show by doing a haunting acoustic rendition of a song that he had written called John Wayne Gacy Jr. The song was, was a haunting meditation on the serial killer of the same name who achieved national headlines and notoriety because he buried his victims under the floorboards of his home in Illinois. And 
In front of a hushed crowd of thousands of people, Stephen sang this song and finished with the last verse of it, which goes like this. He sang, in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hid. I think that that's true of us. If you're like me, you've, you've got secrets under your floorboards. God refuses to be indifferent to the, to the ruin infesting his world. But the good news of this story, if we're willing to hear it, is that this is not really simply a story of ruin. It's also, at the end of the day, a story of profound rescue. There's not just judgment in those waters. There's grace in those waters as well, too. And we hear that as we hear the turn in the story. God sees the darkness and violence of the world, and then we're told, but Noah finds favor with God. God announces to Noah he's going to make an end of the violence that's ending his world, and then he says, but I'm going to establish my covenant with you. God rescues Noah. He brings him through a watery grave and out the other side. Again, there is a symmetry here with the creation story that begins the Bible. Just as God begins creation with animals and the human community that are male and female here, God's going to begin again by making a new creation through the waters, through death, into a new life. And so God, at one and the same time, he acts against evil, but doesn't abandon us. God makes a way through and brings us into new life and freedom. You can hear this, especially if you listen to this story against the backdrop of the culture that it comes to us from. There are, there are several other flood stories that come to us from the ancient Near East. And if you read this story alongside those other stories, there are several similarities, but then also a number of striking differences. And this is the chief one. In all of those other ancient epics, the gods are pictured as, as petty, arguing with one another, and determined to exact vengeance on humanity, to take revenge on them for this or that reason. In this story, ultimately, God is determined to rescue his world. God stubbornly refuses to give up on its creation, even when its creation is hard at work destroying itself. And as we watch the saga of the scriptures unfold, this story is a picture for us of what God ultimately does for us through Jesus. Just as Noah goes through the water and out the other side, Christ would go through the waters of death, would bear the waters of, of God's judgment of sin once and for all to come out the other side into new life and make us new creations to live life with God now and forever. This story ultimately, if we trace out God's work in the world, shows us God in Jesus making every inch of his world new again. And so I want to I close by simply helping you to hear the invitations in this story. First, for, for those of us for whom you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation in this story to enter the ark, as it were. See, because of Jesus, the invitations and the promises that God makes to Noah 
God makes to you as well too. Even if, you're, even if your life, if you're being honest, when you look in the mirror, if it's been pretty burnt yourself, uh, if, it's been filled with, if it's been filled with violence and darkness, God nevertheless says to you, 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 you can have my favor in Jesus. I'll, I want to establish my covenant with you. I want you to come in to my grace and mercy. There's an invitation to enter the ark, as it were. Second, for us as a community of Jesus followers here in this time and place, there's an invitation to to be the ark, as it were, as well, too. Our ancient mothers and fathers in faith often, often used the ark as an image for what the church is supposed to be in the world in which it, in which it finds itself. I saw a brilliant architectural picture of this some time ago when I was reading a feature that talked about a project that had won an international prize in Finland. In the city of Helsinki, in Helsinki's downtown financial district, there was a group of architects that built a chapel called the Helsinki Chapel of Silence. And in the busiest district of Finland's busiest city, amid all of the, all of the chaos and buzz and noise of downtown Helsinki, this chapel stands right in the middle of all of it. And it's built with light-toned wood that's circular in design. There's no windows. It's all skylit from the top. And it's built in the shape of an ark. It's built as an ark that people can come into in the midst of the chaos of of downtown life in which they can experience silence, experience the sacred. I saw that, I thought to myself, this is a picture of what we're called to be. It's not an accident through church history. Often as not, churches have been built in the shape of arcs. That's what, that's what, we, that's what we're about as a community. That's what we're building here in Palm Beach County. We want to be building an ark where we're inviting friends, neighbors, people that God loves and saying, God's favor is for you in Jesus. God wants, to, God wants to establish his covenant with you in Jesus. So, friends, may you know and be transformed by, by this good news that God has brought us through the flood, through the waters, and into freedom and new life in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.